Uh, over the last few weeks, we have been looking at a series called Beginnings. We've been looking through the early chapters of the book of Genesis. And uh, we're coming today to the last of that series. So I suppose we could call it the end of the beginnings. And we started by looking at the uh, glorious story of God's creation. <clears throat> and we saw God's order, we saw the wonder, and just the, uh, the variety of God's creation culminating in the creation of man, where it says that God breathed into him the breath of life and he became a living soul. And then we moved on and we looked at the situation in the Garden of Eden where through man's disobedience, uh, sin came in, alienation and separation from God. And man was banished from that garden and sin came into the world. And sin, wherever man went, sin followed him. And it came to a point we saw that God came down in judgment on the world that he had created. And he told Noah, who was a man of faith and a righteous man, he told Noah to build an ark and Noah believed God, heard God and did what God told him to do. Over a long period of time, I think it was something like a hundred years that Noah was building the ark. And the flood came and uh, God destroyed everything that had been on the earth apart from Noah and his family and uh, the animals that God took, uh, Noah took with him into the ark. And so Noah came out of the ark and, sorry, we saw that Noah heralds a new beginning to the world, but it's not the beginning of a new world. Because God said, interestingly to Noah, before the flood and after the flood, God uses the same words. He says that uh, even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood, God recognized that there was sin before the flood and there was sin after the flood. And as we read on through the chapters leading up to chapter 11, we saw how that sin which was in the DNA of the human heart developed and became even more depraved and deep. And we come today as we look at chapter 11 to see the extent that that sin took man to. Just before we come to chapter 11, we need to look back briefly at what we saw last week, where Andrew took us through chapter 10. And chapter 10 is an interesting chapter, as we saw last week, 
where we have the genealogy of the children of Noah. And how that genealogy became nations which then were scattered over the earth. And we can identify in that uh, table of the nations, as it's called, in chapter 10. We can identify nations which exist today. And then we come to chapter 11. And it's almost as if the author thinks to himself, just a moment, I need to explain what happened that brought about this scattering of the people across the earth. It's not that they did it willingly. And so we have this little section in chapter 11 where the author to the book of Genesis talks about an event, the fourth big event in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, an event which brought about God's purpose and brought about the scattering of the people across the earth. So in a sense, what we're going to look at in chapter 11 precedes chronologically a lot of what we looked at last week in chapter 10. So when we come to chapter 11, it starts with this interesting statement in verse 1. Now the whole earth used the same language and a common speech. My translation actually says the whole earth used the same language and the same words. And there's an interesting difference between these two phrases. We all, I think, understand what is meant by a language. A language is something which is unique in itself. It has its own structure. It has its own grammar. And it has its own vocabulary. And apparently, officially, there are 6,909 languages globally in the world today. Here among us, we probably have a representation of about 12 to 15 of these languages, ranging from Tini, who read the scripture and her Dutch, to Rebecca and her Romanian, and then if we go to Asia, we've got someone like Viola and her Mandarin, and our Korean friends. And then we go to Africa, and we've got Arup, who speaks the Dinka language, and Adosa, who I don't think is with us today, and his Amharic in Ethiopia. These are six examples of languages which are represented here among us. And uh, languages generally are different to another language. Some languages are closely related We could say they are almost like first cousins of each other. So we have Dutch and we have German and we have Norwegian and Swedish and Danish. These are languages which all came from the same origin. And there are many words in these languages that we can identify and understand the meaning of. But then there are other languages where we are struggling to understand anything. I'm just going to give you 
some beautiful words that Jesus said. I'm going to come back to them later on. And uh, it'd be interesting if anyone here can understand what they are. Because I'm going to give them to you in a different language. Jesus said, Mine olen tie ya totus ya eleme. E kukan tule isen mutoin kuin minun kautani. Those are the words of Jesus. And later on I will... Uh, tell you what they mean. But there is this second part of this uh, statement. It says also that they used the same words. Now the same words would indicate that there wasn't any form of dialect amongst the language. So we are English speaking, we all understand, maybe not all mother tongue English speakers, but we all speak English and understand English. But within the English language, there are many dialects. And dialects often use the same words, but they pronounce them differently. Or they might use slightly different words. Some words which are maybe died out in standard English are used in certain areas of the country still to this day. I was brought up as a boy, not very far from here, across the water, 12 miles away in Dundee. And Dundee has got an interesting dialect. (laughs) I can see uh, Viola proudly sporting a Dundee United uh, hoodie. (laughs) Now, she might require these words that I'm going to give you now, next time she goes to a Dundee football match, if she does. Uh, But if you were in a shop in Dundee, you might hear a customer say the following. And I know that there are one or two people here that will understand what I'm going to say now. They might say, geezer pay. And then they might, with a little afterthought, add, geezer nininininah. And those words are not another language. They are perfectly good English words (laughs) pronounced in a slightly different way. And to give them in standard English, the customer is saying, would you please give me a, a beef pie? And then he adds, and perhaps you could give me one with onions as well. Uh, that is dialect. Now, we're told here that they were not only speaking the same language, but they were using exactly the same words. And <clears throat> so, but then as we come to the next part of the chapter, we need to just refer back briefly to something that we read in chapter 10. And... Uh, It's the bit about the gentleman called um, Nimrod. Cush became the father of Nimrod, verse 8 in chapter 10. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, 
and Erech and Akkad and Kalne in the land of Shinar. From that land he went forth into Assyria and so on. And so when we get to this point in verse 2, came as they journeyed east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar. We're referring to those who were following this man, Nimrod. And it's interesting in chapter 10 that we're told he didn't only build a city, he created a kingdom. And scripture calls him a mighty hunter before the Lord. The Jewish Talmud says that he hunted for the souls of men. And I think we can understand from this passage that Nimrod was a warrior. He was someone who uh, conquered people and created a kingdom. He was, in secular terms, a great leader. And so he led these men and women and these people to the plains of Shinar. And that is where our story starts. But before we come to that, we will discover that, not, uh, that Nimrod was not the only, uh, not the first to build a city. If we go back to where we read about Cain and Abel, we learn that after Cain had murdered Abel, God cursed Cain. He said, the land, you're cursed because of the land, because of spilling the blood of your brother. And you're going to be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. And we're told three things about Cain. We're told that he went out from the presence of the Lord. When Cain left, he did not take God with him. He went out on his own and he built a city. God had said, you're going to go out as a vagrant and a wanderer. And Cain said, no. He defies God. He said, I'm going to build a city. I'm going to settle. And I'm not only going to do that, I'm going to make a name for my family. He named the city after his son. And so Cain set up this settlement in defiance of God. And when we come to chapter 11, we see Nimrod doing exactly the same. They say, let us make bricks. They're using the very phrase that God used in the creation. Let us make man in our image. And these people say, let us make bricks. Let us do something for ourselves. Let us be independent of this God. Let us make bricks. Let us build ourselves a city. Let us establish ourselves in this plain, the plain of Shinar. And let us make ourselves a name. And so we see the beginning of a rebellion here, a rebellion against God. Nimrod, the leader, is leading these people in rebellion against the creator God. 
But then things get worse because we're told that they built a tower. Uh, Let us build for ourselves a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And we need to understand what is meant by this. Remember, these people are building on a plane. And I think we can assume that they're not stupid enough to think that they're going to build this tower that's going to reach to heaven. And archaeologists and historians have discovered towers in this area known as ziggurats. And at the top of these towers, there have been galleries where they have been able to observe the stars and the moon and the sun, and there have been signs of the zodiac. And what we have here is Nimrod creating a false religion. These people are beginning to worship the created rather than the creator. I remember in Romans, we're told that they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. We have a situation here where Nimrod has not only building cities and building a kingdom in defiance of God, but he is worshipping false gods. And what does God do? What is God's reaction? God could easily have come down and wiped it all out. But what does God say? Let us go down. Let us go down. Here is a people who's building a tower. And God says, let us go down. Let us confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. He's going to destroy their ability to communicate and relate to one another. They think they can be independent of God. God comes down. It's one of these wonderful instances where God comes down. You remember when uh, Moses meets with God and the burning bush, God says to him, I've seen the suffering of my people and I've come down. On this very day where we celebrate Advent, we remember another wonderful occasion where God came down. And so God confuses them. And uh, God demonstrates his supremacy. Nimrod has created a kingdom. He's created an empire. He's acting independently of the creator God. God comes down and God displays his supremacy. The psalmist says, The kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord and his anointed. Nimrod has taken his stand against the creator God. But he who sits on the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. 
And so we have this situation. God's purpose is fulfilled. The people are confused and they are, we are told, scattered over the whole earth. They didn't do it willingly. God stepped in because God is supreme. God is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he would not stand for rebellion, but he uses it to further his own purposes. Now, we're living in a world today where it's not difficult to identify the Nimrods of today. It's not difficult to identify the spirit of Nimrod, which is in our world. A spirit that defies the law of God. A spirit that defies our creator God defies his laws and acts in complete independence. A spirit which worships other things. We can see that in our world today. And we need to be aware of it and we need to stand against it. And so we come to the second half of this chapter. We see God's supremacy displayed In the first half, where his purposes and his plans are brought to pass despite man's independence and rebellion. And the author, as it were, almost returns to where he left off in chapter 10. And he continues to tell us about the genealogy of Shem. And he comes to a point where he talks about uh, a family. Comes down to a point where he talks about a family who are living in another city. A city which is perhaps one of the cities in the kingdom of Nimrod. A city called Ur. A city which also had a tower. A city which worshipped the moon. And in this city, there is a family. There's a man called Terah. And he's got a son called Abram. And they're living in this city. And they're worshipping the moon. Joshua tells us that at the end of his book. He said, when God called your father Abraham from over the river. He was a pagan and he was worshipping other gods. And God steps in. It's not as if this is God's plan B. This is the plan that God had had from the very beginning of time. And God steps in and he calls out this family from the city of Ur. And they move out and they come to another city, a city of Haran. And we're told that they settled there. But God calls out Abram. And as we read at the beginning of chapter 12, God says to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land 
that I will show you. And so Abraham, a pagan, he hears God's call and he's obedient. And so we have here God's sovereignty. We've seen God's supremacy, but here we have God's sovereignty. And what does that mean? What does sovereignty mean? Well, to understand sovereignty, we need to understand his supremacy. Because if God is supreme, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, God is able to do as he chooses. And so he says, you do not choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you. And so God chose Abraham because he's sovereign. His sovereign grace reached into this pagan city, called out this family, called out this individual, Abraham, because he knew that Abraham would be obedient to his call. And we are sitting here this morning, most of us here, because we have heard God's call and we have been obedient. And there may be someone here who has never heard God's call before. Let me tell you, he's calling you today. We'll come to that later. But he's calling you. And he's looking for obedience. And he's looking for faith. And so Abraham went out And in Hebrews chapter 11, we're told that Abraham, having followed God by faith, when he was called, he obeyed, going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents. Abraham never again dwelt in a city. He dwelt in tents, for he was looking for a city which has foundations, whose whose builder and whose architect is God. What Abraham perhaps did not realize was that God was not going to build his city with bricks. He was going to build his city with living stones. And here was Abraham, one of the first, to be placed in that building. We are living stones. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. God has a city in mind, and God is building his city not with bricks, not with bitumen or tar. He's building his city with living stones. And each one here who acknowledges Jesus as their Lord and Savior is part of that amazing city. 
And it's going to culminate eventually. This thing works. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And so here we have the end of the beginnings, at the beginning of chapter 11. But we have the beginning of the end, at the end of chapter 11. When God, in sovereign grace, calls out Abraham, a pagan, from a city called Ur. A man who was worshipping the moon. But the creator, the one who created the moon, calls him out. And Abram obeys. And as we sit here, we are sons and daughters of Abraham. And so we come to Advent. Advent is a time where God has communicated with his people. Not in any specific language, but he's communicated with his people through the word become flesh. And John the evangelist says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. The glory of the only begotten with the Father, full of grace and truth. And he continues, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten who dwells in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. He has communicated him. And so in Jesus we see this wonderful communication Of the glory of God. Those words which I quoted to you earlier were Jesus' words I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is an invitation, friends, to everyone here today. Come to the Father through Jesus the Son. He has made a way. He is the way. He is the truth. And he is the life. And there's a a new advent. He's coming again. What a glory that will be. And we're going to see this holy city coming down out of heaven. And we are invited this morning to be part of that holy city. And so I leave you with this chapter. It looks dark at the beginning of the chapter. It's like winter in Narnia. But when we come to the end of the chapter, we see a new beginning. We see a man called Abram who is obedient to God's call. Let us all be obedient to God's call today. Amen.